Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah. Hello, this is Shayla Kulkarni from Annapolis, Maryland, and you're listening to the Absolutely Fabulous Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, folks, and thank you to Shayla, uh, who you heard in our intro there, Shayla from Annapolis, Maryland, home of the United States Navy. Uh, fun fact for you about Annapolis, Maryland. So thank you to Shayla. David's here. Hello, David. Hello. How are we doing today? We're doing good. Matt's here. How are you doing, Matt? Very well, thank you. Very well. Everyone is present and correct to talk about the fact that Carlos Alcaraz and Iga Svantec are the champions. And I thought if I keep that nice and generic... We can we can reuse it for the next uh, decade <laughs> and more, yeah. Um, because I think that'll be a, a very useful time saver. Yeah, we we think back to Thursday's show, and I think I, I left it in Matt's hands to do the title, and he he came up with who can stop Igor Swiatek and Carlos Alcaraz, and honestly, it seemed like the most inevitable conclusion to this tournament that I can remember in a heck of a long time and that's even with some really strong opposition but that's how much better than the rest of the field they felt now I know I'm not going to start saying that this means that that will necessarily be the case all year and all the rest of it but just at the moment they are so far ahead of what else was I mean you literally predicted him to win the next Grand Slam but well but but yes true It's true there, Matt, isn't it? I mean, somehow, I mean, two very different scenarios. You know, Iga Svantec com- completing, becoming the first woman ever to win the first three 1,000-level uh, events of the season. People have won three in a row before, but never the first three of the season. Um, so I-, I guess on paper, we might look back at that and go, oh, it, it seemed vaguely inevitable and... Carlos Alcaraz somehow seemed inevitable, despite the fact that, you know, he's not even ranked inside the world's top 10. He'd never been to a, a final of a thousand before. He's 18 years old. Nobody that young had, and no male player that young had ever won Miami before. And yet that seemed inevitable too. Like, of course they won those titles. Yeah, it's nice when something ages well. And uh, Thursday's pod title did which is good and and yeah 
it did feel like there was a connection between what they were doing. Um, you know, I wasn't trying to compare Alcaraz's career to Svantec so far, or as David said, say that they're going to win everything going forward. I think they're going to win a lot going forward. But just this tournament, it had by Thursday, it had the feel to it that Alcaraz and Svantec were the players to beat, and. Alcaraz came close to losing. I'm sure we'll talk about his match against Ketsmanovic, but otherwise they were they were head and shoulders above everyone else, really. And that is despite the fact that Igor Svantec played four-time Grand Slam champion Naomi Osaka in her final. Um, I'm a bit I'm a bit torn about how to deal with this match because, in some ways, it was a desperate disappointment. I I was so pumped for it, folks. I was, I was, it was too much, I would say. I, I, I worry that I jinxed it a little bit. And I, and I, and I really, and I felt so good about how pumped I was sort of at about, I I mean, the, the first, just the first game was an epic, wasn't it? And I thought, yep, great. I felt so comfortable in the fact that it was going to be a great match and i think i think up until about 3 all that was that continued to be the case it was really nip and tuck um and then it just just felt like everything changed Igor Svantec got a break and that was kind of it i mean yeah the the first set felt competitive ish for the the remainder but the second set didn't feel competitive at all, I mean, wasn't competitive at all. I, I do wonder if there was some sort of injury or niggle at play for Osaka because she really almost looked like she gave up in the latter stages of that that second set. And that might just be because she had no answers. Frankly, uh, Shrontek m- made her look one-dimensional because she was just trying to hit through her Osaka and... It was so clear that wasn't going to work and it was kind of like a shrug. Well, I don't know what else I can do. And frankly, the answer is probably there was nothing else you, you, you could have done with uh, with Shrontek in that kind of form. But, um, but yeah, it wasn't the duel that I wanted it to be. There were many aspects of the match that I enjoy. I love, I mean, just Shrontek is just, she makes you smile, doesn't she? She's... She's good news. There were lots of aspects that I enjoyed, but what I wanted was a fight to the death, David. <laughs> I yeah, didn't I, get it. I shared the uh, the feeling of jinxing it because after three games, I, I wanted to tell everybody about what I was witnessing as though it was only me who was watching it. Um, I was shouting up the stairs to the kids, you've got to see this. I was messaging you, I was tweeting about these three games that I just witnessed that had taken 20-odd minutes and these two... Greats of the game in terms of talent, really su- supernatural talents, just going locking horns and going going toe to toe. And there was a rally, I think, that was finished with an Osaka backhand down the line, having been under the gun from an onslaught of ground strokes from Sviantec That just, I jumped out my seat at it because that was that was the moment. But that was as good as it got as a contest, mm. and I felt. We then saw the difference in match toughness between the two players. You called it in our conversation baked in confidence that Svantec has got now. And that, that sums it up, I think. It's, it was 
pretty flimsy, really, the confidence of Osaka. It was built on a week's worth of good wins over people she's just better than. And then when she came up against somebody that's of a similar sort of skill set and standard, who was just way more confident and way more self-assured, and all the boxes were ticked in her game at the moment... It was just one-sided. And also, you you saw that ambition again from Shriantek. She is... She's kind of a killer on the court. She just wants to win so badly that she doesn't let you off for a second. As nice as she is, and they have a really nice rapport, these two. And you could see it afterwards. But <laughs> during the match, <laughs> it was absolutely ruthless. Yeah, Matt, confidence is such a, a buzzword in, well, in all sport, isn't it? That you almost, I mean, I almost find myself sort of glaze over when when ex-pros talk about confidence because, you know, it's just it's just so commonplace and, and it's really sort of explained what it really means and what it really feels like. And I felt like we watched a demonstration of what sporting confidence really, truly is in that final because it seemed on the surface of it that Osaka has it. She's the one with four four Grand Slam titles under her belt, former world number one. Um, you know, it's her home tournament in Miami or she thinks of it as one of her home tournaments. She had been sweeping all before her. She had overturned um, one-sided head-to-heads against her you know she was beating players that she used to not beat even when she was in her pomp um it all looked to all intents and purposes like she should have bags of confidence but it was all surface level once Iga Svantec drilled down into it 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 shook and it and it crumbled away which is entirely understandable I don't think she'd played a a top 10 player for for two years um, before playing Iga Svantec. And you, you look at a stat like that and you think, well, of course. Um, but by contrast, Svantec's confidence is just, I mean, pretty much at an, an absolute peak of, of where sporting confidence can be, I think. Yeah, it was pretty much a uh, perfect example of that Andy Roddick, I don't know whether you would call it a, a maxim or something, where he says he would take he would take confidence over experience any day and I think you know Osaka is the one you know compared to Svantec with even more big match experience she's won four times the number of majors she's won more big titles but in terms of confidence at the moment and yeah that that expression you use baked in confidence Svantec has that and not only does she have that in just this winning streak she's on 17 matches now She's also got it in these in these recent big matches. And in fact, all the big matches she's ever played, she has turned up and played extremely well. I think actually, I think the second set of every 1,000 level event or Grand Slam final she's played has been 6-1 or 6-love. You know, she's such a good front runner. Once she gets ahead in a match, and we saw it, it was the perfect example against Osaka. Once she gets ahead... There doesn't seem to be any stopping her. She she figures out what she needs to do in a match and she just keeps doing it. And I thought the way she turned Osaka's pace back on her, whipped it back, uh, the way she slides into the ball to defend Osaka's pace, it was just it was just a masterclass. And yes, it was it was disappointing that it didn't end up being that sort of three set epic I think we all felt it could be. But 
still, I think it was a, it was a great occasion. You know, I think I think I don't think you were alone with your excitement. That was that was as much sort of big match buzz as I can remember going into a match. And you know, in terms of the way you judged that, just in the stadium, it, it felt like there was a buzz. Uh, people following it o- online, it felt like there was a lot of conversation, and everyone was watching it. And okay, the match didn't turn out to be what it could have been, but. It was still great to see those two players go against each other. And, and you felt like whatever the scoreline would be, there would be an interesting storyline from it. And, and the one we've got is a, is Iga Sviontek just, just proving that she's the best player in the world right now, repeatedly. And that's that's pretty exciting. I don't want to, to end the discussion of this this final in this extraordinary run that Sviontek's on on a, on, a, on a bum note. But did the results make you yearn for Ash Barty because it did me because if Ash Barty hadn't announced her retirement then you know if we hadn't if she weren't retiring or if we didn't know that she were retiring we would be talking right now about whether Svantec is in fact the best player in the world and we would be desperately yearning for the matchup between them to decide in our minds and in reality which of them is the best player in the world. Um, and there's a strong case to be made, having seen the, seen the tennis that we just have from Shiontek, that, that regardless of Ash Barty, she's the best player in, in the world right now, but but we'll never see it. Um, and that's really sad. Sorry, yeah, so, but it's sad, it isn't now. it? Uh, I mean, I, I still could see a year in the future when Ash Barty decides she wants to find out. Actually, her curiosity comes out. And she ends up making a comeback to see for herself. Um, I think she's young enough to do that in four years if she wants to do. But and, I, and actually, I didn't think that immediately because I still feel like if this is work in progress from Osaka, I was more disappointed that Osaka couldn't get her best out because I think her best absolutely is a match for for those two. And I would love to. That's that's the rivalry I'm now looking forward to. But when you mentioned it. Yeah, my mind did slip towards that, and there are, and and also to Andrescu, you know, because I I think that I it, we may have seen the best of her, and and that would oh, be a God, shame. Oh God, David! Yeah, it's a terrible thing to do, think, do, isn't do, it? Do, you, hang on, she's been she's been tweeting hopeful things. Mm. She's been making me feel hopeful. She Good. tweeted praying hands emoji and soon. Yeah, I, I I really hope that her. Her best is yet to come. But you don't think it is? Well, I don't know. I don't feel confident. I think that we've seen... What is it? Is it th- we're two and a half years now since she but won she's that done, title? But she's done an eat, pray, love, David. She's she's rejuvenated. I really she's hope been, so. Cause she's I think... been to... She's been to... Is it Costa Rica she's been to? think she might have been on a I'm, retreat in Costa Rica I'm not as on the Insta and issue. eaten a lot of avocado <laughs> right. uh, and done some mindfulness and she's she's coming back good I really hope so by fueled by avocado and uh, essential oils <laughs> I was really not prepared to in this podcast, to have to envision a world where we've seen the best of Bianca no, Andreescu was, already. No, can you you've, tell how taken aback I am? You've taken us to a to a dark place, David. You know, you know where I'm coming from, though, don't you? 
Of course it's possible, yeah, but I'm not I'm not possible. prepared to say it out loud yet. No, I can't I can't contemplate that. I mean, going back to to Barty and Igish Film Tech, I mean, I can't I can't get over the fact that just 10 days ago we were talking about Barty retiring and the way Sviontek has just stepped up into into that void. I think there could have been there could have been any time in the last couple of years where Barty might have retired and we would have seen the number one spot change a lot. It would have really felt like there wasn't a world number one. And okay, Barty has retired and you know, I, I I do sort of still think of her as kind of the best player in the world, but equally I, I think I think Sviontek is is filling that void already. Um and in terms of the rivalry, I think I think there is potential for an Osaka Sviontek rivalry on a hard court. Like I think we have seen Osaka play tennis that can that can be this good at various points in her career, but it has always been either the end of the season around the US Open time or the start of the season around the Australian Open time. What sort of what I would have loved about the Barty Sviontek rivalry is that it could have been all year round because they are all surface players and there was that potential for them to sort of jostle for position and be a be a dual narrative throughout the season. And I, I don't think we're going to quite get that with Osaka. Really, really positive quotes from her about how much she's looking forward to embracing clay and grass this season. And I'm, I'm here for all of that. But it's a it's a big work in progress for her on, on those surfaces. And I think some slightly lower expectations might help her this season. But I'm not expecting her to to be a sort of real force yet on those surfaces in the way she is on a hard court. And I think we would have got that with Sviontek and Barty. So, yeah, I was watching that match a little bit thinking of Barty. And, you know, that's... That's the impact she had on the sport. She was she was the world number one. She was the best player. Of course, we are going to miss her, but equally, Sviontek's doing doing an incredible job of of stepping up. Mm. She she said she's going to start watching videos of Nadal, Osaka, and his movement to try and improve her movement on clay. <laughs> yeah, it's never worked for me, <laughs> but Osaka's way better. Yeah, yeah, I feel like. I've watched quite a lot of Nadal play tennis <laughs> and it's it's not gone in by osmosis yet. But do you, do you think she should be concentrating in a way more on grass and trying to cuz it, it's quite a big ask isn't it to try and crack them both I, when you when you're a hardcore I, I, player. I get the impression from her quotes that she she's really got a thing in her head about grass. I I, re, I think she feels more uncomfortable on grass than she does on really? clay. I think she, yeah, I, think I her, agree. Yeah, I. Why would that be? Do you think? Why would I think she it's be the move. I think it's the movement. Um, I mean, from the outside, I I agree with you. I don't see any reason why she can't figure it out on grass. But you've really got to believe with grass. Um, and I think there's a mental block there in the way there isn't there isn't on on clay. I wonder if she's just got a. And I think possibly she should invert that because, as you say, always it was you that said, Matt. You know, expectations-wise, she's possibly expecting too much of herself on clay. She thinks, oh, I can figure that out. You know, I'll watch a few Nadal videos and and I'll figure it out. And sort of on grass, she thinks, God, I might never figure that out. And maybe she needs, you know, watch some Agassi videos to to balance balance the two. (laughs) Um, And you've probably got the right. 
the right attitudes. Is Agassi video? Is that the that's well, what he ref- recommend? He, he refused to practice on grass for, ahead of Wimbledon '92. He just went and practiced on a hard court because he decided that was his game, and he put his hard court game on grass. I mean, admittedly, he was up against seven volleys, so that was different. But is it that different these days? I mean. It is a bit. It is different, but they're harder than they've ever been. Those courts, they're truer bounces. Uh, I think she. Uh, look, it's very easy for someone like me to say, "Oh, get out of your own way." But I kind of feel that if she could simplify it, isn't, she could be. Isn't a force that what on everyone it. does now, David? Though they just put their game on grass. Does anyone really? I, come I, out and say, "I'm going to play a grass court game." Well, you, I think the they the do their uh, thing. Assumption of a grass court game is serving and volleying and going to the net, when actually I think a lot of it is more about how low you get to the ball and how you guide the ball, whereas in every, on everything else you're hitting the ball, you're swiping, you're hitting, you're, impo- you're in, um, imparting spin, uh, top spin. Whereas I, th- I think on grass, I mean, I always listen to Andy Murray and Leighton Hewitt talking about themselves as grass court players. Neither one of those is charging towards the net every game, every point, but they're doing it in a slightly different way. They're taking a ball on the rise and re-diverting, redirecting it. Um, and I just feel as though there's nothing that Osaka can't do on that surface. Look at the serve for, for, for starters. Mm. You know, she should be, she should be loving it. And and I think a lot of it is just if she can just start enjoying it. There's so there's so little time for her to do that though, isn't it? It's basically one warm up tournament and then boom. Yeah. You're in you're into a grand slam and, and When was the last time she even played on grass? I guess it would have been twenty nineteen mm. Wimbledon. Well I think she lost to Putin Saver, if I'm not mistaken, quite mm. early in that tournament. She's she's not had any reps on that surface for yeah, three years. Should help that she'll get on show courts, I think. You know, I think that that would help her. Those bigger, better kept courts. Mm. Okay, well, um, well, that's for another discussion for, for a few months down the line. Iga Svantec now heads on to, to clay. You, I mean, I was going to lazily say her favourite surface, but, you know, she, she might now call hard courts a favourite surface. She might no longer have a favourite surface because she can, she can do it anywhere, anytime. But she heads on to clay where she's won her one and only Grand Slam on a 17-match winning streak. Help us all, said Jessica Pagula, which <laughs> I think feels accurate. Yeah, she's sort of becoming a... A spokeswoman, isn't she, for just all of our thoughts? Um, so that is Iga Svantec, uh, just an extraordinary feat. Four in love over Nermi Osaka, youngest player ever to win the Sunshine Double. Um, Laura Siegmund and Vera Zvonareva, with a combined age of 71, uh, won the doubles title. They beat top seeds Elise Mertens and Veronica Kudamatova, 7-6. Seven five. Um, I know players are getting older, um, and you know doubles players can play for a long time. But it's quite old, isn't it? <laughs> They've done well there. It, Ash Barty's retired, and Vera Zvonareva isn't. <laughs> what a world! <laughs> Indeed. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. In the men's tournament, 18-year-old Carlos Alcaraz beat Casper Ruud 7-5, 6-4 to become the youngest ever ATP Miami winner, the third youngest ATP Masters 1000 winner after Michael Chang and, yep, Rafael Nadal. Um, there were there were scenes with his coach Juan Carlos Ferrero both before that final and immediately after it. I can't stop replaying that hug in my mind. Um, he played the match of the week. Uh, previous to that, did Carlos Alcaraz six seven six three seven six over Mirmir Ketsmanovic, who, by the way, is shaping up to be a serious player from from now onwards. I think we need to reframe who we think Mirmir Ketsmanovic is. Maybe we were in the process of doing that, but it, it, it's time to confirm that. Um, Hubert Hercatch got the better of uh, Daniil Medvedev in that matchup we were previewing on our last podcast. Matt's written fish on a sofa uh, next to this bullet point. Um, explain. We'll 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 need to maybe we should just explain that now. Get that out of the way. You obviously missed this quote. I mean, it feels like it does need explaining if you haven't seen it. But yeah, that was uh, that was Daniil Medvedev's description of himself. During that match, he said he was like a fish on a sofa because he was just cramping so much and his body was sort of contorting 
Um, he does not enjoy the heat and humidity. I think Medvedev. He's he's only mm. I've only really seen him look like that before in heat and humidity. Do you remember last year in Miami? He was walking like an old man, wasn't he? With his with his cramping. Uh, we saw him at the Tokyo Olympics, really struggling as well. That is an area he doesn't like. We've obviously subsequently found out that he's been he's been struggling with a hernia, and he's he's had a hernia operation. He's mm. he's out now for. a potentially a couple of months so i'm sure that was contributing as well but yeah fish on a sofa feels like you know i was trying to find the words for what medvedev looked like on on that court and of course medvedev himself came up with with the words uh that that feels like a quote that that we'll be going back to yes and of course he did the dead fish celebration when he won the us open last year so yes whether intentional or not he's (laughs) He's got a theme. Fit fish is is going to become his thing. Um, but anyway, back to Carlos Alcaraz, who we're not going to be able to avoid hyperbole and bandwagon jumping and all of it because I, I, I think he's changing the sport. I really do. Everything that I said on Thursday, you know, looks like he's sent from the future. Rinse and repeat. He's... He's... He's different. He's something else. I said that changing the sport line in in one of our tweets this, this week and got a little bit of pushback. And I was thinking about why I think he's changing the sport. And it, it seems to me like a combination of the way he's playing, you know, in terms of his combination of speed and power is not something I remember seeing, especially from from an 18 year old you know you think when I think when Nadal came along and I'm look I'm really trying not to compare him to Nadal all the time but when Nadal came along he didn't have a serve like Alcaraz has got you know Alcaraz can get that serve up to 140 miles an hour he didn't have a backhand like Alcaraz has got he's just he's got awesome power on on both wings and this incredible speed so so the playing style is is different but also to be getting these results at this age I I thought the days of teenagers winning big on the ATP tour were pretty much over. And they I thought they were pretty much over with Nadal and with Djokovic and with Murray and with Del Potro. Those players have have taken the physicality to a level which is just so extreme now. And we've seen a lot of talented players come along in the last 15 years or so, but it's always taken them time. You know, look at team, the way he's physically built up. Look at look at the way Medvedev has sort of become physically strong and figured out his own game. And Alcaraz is the first player I, I can remember since Nadal, Murray, Djokovic, who's just immediately come along and just looked like a problem. He just looks like a problem for the best players in the world already. And yeah, those are the ways for me, which I would sort of justify this this idea of him changing the sport. And that is what I believe right now, is what we're seeing from him. Wow. Uh, I mean, they're, they're lofty words, but I mean, that's how, that's how he makes you feel when, he, when you're watching him, because he kind of, he's got bits of all those big three. I'm not saying he is them all combined, but he's got parts of their game in his from the obvious comparisons with Nadal because of being Spanish, because of the manner in which he carries himself, the way he looks like he's been plugged into the mains from ball one, um, the exuberance, the perseverance that he showed during those matches that you've just described in which he was down. He was a set down against Miamir Ketsmanovic who was playing out of his mind, who was, who was wonderfully 
impressive. And yet he still got the better of him. And in that final against Kasparud, he was 4-1 down. And he was 4-1 down a couple of times in these matches and just not quite hitting his straps. He was a bit erratic. He Maybe it was a bit of nerves. Maybe he's going for too much. I think he does that occasionally early on. Um, but there's there's something special about him inside where he he'll just tap into whatever it is. And once he then goes flat out, he's got a sort of foot-to-the-floor speed that nobody else seems able to live with. And uh, and I saw it in uh, parts in the in the match against Casper Rude. There was there was a side to side match where Rude, who is fast, he is he is quick around the court, and he is he has got blistering power on the on the ground strokes, and he, he can go, he was going toe to toe, and yet still the final shot is one one by Cas Carlos Alcaraz because he just has that little extra, um, and then he's got the the ability to contort himself a little bit like Djokovic does. He's, he seems so supple. He's much more lithe than a Nadal. He's much more physically built like a Djokovic. And then you've got somebody who's prepared to serve and volley at this age, 18. You know, he's not a serve and volleyer, and yet he's throwing second serve, serve and volley points with a kick serve and coming in and looking completely at ease at the net at this age at important moments. Match turning moments I mean look that doesn't mean anything for the long run necessarily it bloody well feels like it does though and it feels like he's just got it he's just got it in the mind he's he, he, when he would win a couple of those points and be walking back to his position looking up at Ferrero and the other people in his box and just nodding and it was no, it, it was just a sort of yeah I've, I'm okay. I've got this. I know. I know exactly what I'm doing. I've got it in me. And he's not looking for any uh, any instruction. He's just looking for connection. That that he, be, so that he can let everybody know. Don't worry. I've got, I've got this now. Now now we win. Some some player. This guy. I'm going to repeat um, the analogy that I used in our WhatsApp chat with Mary Carillo that she that she approved of and complimented um, because there is no, there is no greater compliment. So I, th- I think it deserves a second airing, um, which is it, it, it's quite a niche analogy perhaps. Um, but he makes me think about um, the, the late nineties uh, in figure skating when Alexei Yagodin started uh, consistently performing a quad uh, in men's figure skating, and Evgeny Plushenko quickly caught caught up and developed developed quads himself. A quadruple jump, uh, so four rotations in the air. Before that, triples, uh, and in particular the triple axle, which is um, an axle is an extra half rotation, so three and a half. That was the jump that the the men were performing. Um, and that seemed, you know, a quad was, uh, don't at me. I know that Jagadin wasn't the first. I know Kurt Browning was the first. It had been done, you know, once once or twice, you know, people just eked one out. But I'm talking about somebody that consistently showed up, had a quad in his arsenal and changed the game. If he landed that quad, if he showed up and performed, that was it. Nobody else stood a chance. It completely completely changed the sport um and i i look at i look at you know sits a pass 
and Zverev and Rublev, maybe even Felix Auger Aliassime, great, great players. But they looked to me like the rest of the pack that were left standing around clutching their measly triple axles to me. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to win slams because we know that no matter how brilliant a tennis player is, they don't win everything. But it feels to me like injury permitting, it's crumbs off the table. They'll, they'll win slams, they will, but they'll, w- they'll win the ones that Alcaraz doesn't. The, the game is in Alcaraz's hands for me. Which I suppose the question to ask now is, is when is the first one? <clears throat> David's got the answer to that, Matt. You, you've mm. asked the right question to the I right man. That months ago, folks. Let's be honest. <laughs> oh, by the way, Mary, Mary also said that she views Alcaraz as the fastest player she's ever seen across the court. And, uh, and that really took me aback because I'm the one who does the stupid hyperbole around here. And Mary doesn't. You know, so if she's mm, saying Mary, it, Mary validated a lot of our hyperbole, didn't yeah. she? Yeah, and, and I, <laughs> I said feel to, more confident in delivering it. I found myself saying, "Now, Mary, um, <laughs> Bjorn Borg was incredibly quick, and Leighton Hewitt was incredibly quick, and Michael Chang, and Rafael Nadal, and Novak Djokovic." And she, but she was she was clear in her mind that he he has got the more explosive speed. The, the the greater horsepower, she said. Um, you know, you've got different types of quickness. You've got Borg, who's lithe. You've got Hewitt, who's short, and therefore is able to scuttle, isn't he? And Diminor, those types, and and the Dal is uh, this thunderous horse who's running back and forth. But yeah, he he does make you double take Alcaraz the way he keeps rallies going. Um, and uh, oh, and by the way, on the subject of Mary, she also wanted me to to address, uh, or she put me right on uh, the is Ash Barty in the goat debate, didn't she? Uh, the greatest of all time debate uh, on her measly three Grand Slam singles titles. But I mean, she was pointing out um, in our exchange that you need longevity, you need to have been able to dominate for a long. You long didn't argue that she was in the goat debate, did you? I raised it. I raised whether her. Um, level in the Ash Barty Retires show, whether her level over that year and a half will be something we will remember as a level that was of that standing. Um, yeah. So quite happy to say that, no, she's not the goat. Well, the good <laughs> news is that lots of our other takes from recent podcasts, David, thanks to Igor Shontek and Carlos Alcaraz, have <laughs> aged well. Yes. And we're looking big picture, long term there at Carlos Alcaraz. I actually think in the short term, his his winning that he's done over the last couple of months is a great injection into the ATP tour. And I, I think I've, I've I've thought this for a while. One of the one of the consequences of Nadal, Djokovic being in their mid thirties now is that they have had to prioritise and really focus on majors. And it has, I think, detracted a little bit from the week-in, week-out tour that the best players in the world are not that focused on them. You know, if they lost in those tour events, it was kind of like, well, how much can you read into that? Because they're different, they're different players at the slams. And, of course, they're going to keep being different players at the slams. So 
in that respect, you know, this this was a week that Alcaraz won without Nadal and without Djokovic. But at the same time, we've got a player now, Alcaraz, 18, who's just just ravenous and capable and wanting to win everything. And we're going to have him... OK, we've seen him scheduled sensibly, but we're going to have him pretty much at every big tour event. And he's going to be kind of at his best, you'd have thought. And that is an exciting prospect. I'm excited to see him come up against Djokovic, hopefully on the clay over the next few months. I'm excited to see him play Nadal again on clay. And I'm excited to see him play the players you've listed there, Catherine, that sort of, you know, that group, Tsitsipas, Rublev, etc. Because he's now like the big test on the tour. You know, he, he he's someone who... Well, Nadal said he's playing top eight tennis, didn't he, a couple of weeks ago. I think I think you could shift that up to top five, really, at the moment. He, he is he is that guy right now. And that's an exciting prospect, I think, for the tour. That's such a good point. And that is an answer, Matt, which will please Billie Jean King immensely. <laughs> You've said majors and slams. I heard, I heard you mix that in there. <laughs> uh, and you've also bigged up the tours. I'm, I'd as like well to see as, him as play well against. A, I want to see him play against a big server. I'm trying to think of matches he's played against really big servers, and I can't think of many. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him try to do that. You know, uh, Kyrgios, um, Medvedev. We didn't get to see that match, and we're going to have a bit of a wait for it, aren't we? I remember seeing him play Zverev, and he lost pretty straightforwardly a year ago. Um, I mean, he was a very different player then. But these are that's a test that I feel like I haven't really seen yet. Mm, okay, and yep. and and that bond with Juan Carlos Ferrero, oh. that's special. Oh. That that really is special. And I, I think again, a, a lot of a lot of top players have a have someone who's been with them the whole time, or they have they have someone with whom they have a special bond. Tony Nadal, Marion Vida, Severin Luti. You know, just 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 to pick up the big three there. And Juan Carlos Ferreira could be that guy for Alcaraz. Look, who knows what will happen? But sharing a moment like they did this week with Juan Carlos Ferreira having a really, really difficult time. His his father dying, I think, just in between Indian Wells and Miami. He he flew back to Spain and then there was that incredible video of, of him coming back for the final to surprise Alcaraz. And Alcaraz was writing on the camera throughout uh, tributes to Eduardo, who was Juan Carlos Ferreira's father, that's a special thing they have shared this week. I just, I just think something like that will, will bond them together for a long, long time. And I think that's, that's important to have that figure in your, in your career, in your life. I always think, always think back to Chris Clary's book about Federer and the people surrounding him being important. And Mary, Mary says that as well. And I think, I think Ferrero is, is that guy for Alcaraz. I actually I'm, uh, I need you to take over, David, because I can't even think about that hug without uh, well, the, the, without that, tearing that, up a bit. It, it, oh, that it moment really in the hotel <laughs> where suddenly Juan Carlos Ferrero's arrival is kind of announced, and Alcaraz just jumps out of his seat and and like dances. He's like dancing mm. over to him. He's so he's like he's just scored a goal. Uh, his team and and he just wants to. But it's embrace so childlike him. as well. Yeah, he's so, it's you lovely. Know, he's he's so much a man in so many ways that to see him just look like a a kid and and the um, thing is i i mean uh, i was around when when carlos ferrer was alcaraz's age and 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 this he's a he's a 
quite a presence, uh, uh, Ferrero. I think he, he he's a s- s- more slight individual um, who just had this sort of waspish ability to to hurt people on the court. Um, but he was very likable back then. I remember he always thought he was he seemed like a really nice fella all the way through. And and this. Uh, movement into kind of father figure or big brother figure is it really suits him he he has a lovely demeanor on the sidelines in the box and with Alcaraz it really works he's I don't get the sense that he needs it needs to be about him in any way he's just trying to support him and nurture him and the pride that he looks at him with it's it's very it looks very healthy was he one of the new balls please for yes I've I've got the the picture somewhere of them all lined up. Uh, I must dig that out. <laughs> and now he's father figure, mentor, coach for the for the new new balls. Yeah. Mm. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> really gets me. You're all right, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else happened in Miami? Um, somebody help me here. Well, uh, Hercatch, br- brilliant title defence from Hercatch, yeah, wasn't it? He, so he impressed by that. Played brilliantly, and and just there was there was that lovely moment in in his match with Alcaraz where Alcaraz conceded a a, a point or let him replay a point because there was a not up call against Hercatch who who was shown on the the screen to have reached a ball and. And Alcaraz just said, yeah, let's just play it again. And and you could see how much Hercatch appreciated that. And actually, that was a bit of a theme of the tournament, the latter stages, the, the good sportsmanship. We had another one between Rude and Alcaraz as well. Just just good, good blokes, I felt, duking it out. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, and then you got Hercatch joining up with John Isner for Isner to win the Sunshine Double Doubles uh crown Indian Wells in with sock and here with her catch in Miami I mean that's that's a fantastic achievement from her catch to go all the way in both like that um and then of course there was the man that he beat in his match Medvedev saying he's got a hernia issue and he's he's had a small operation and he's out for a well one or two months and that probably means the clay isn't going to happen for him which (laughs) Maybe he's not going to lose any sleep over. Um, but, um, yeah, he, he didn't look right, did he, in the heat? But he also, he didn't necessarily look as though he was on full charge into the corners. And maybe a hernia might explain it. It's funny, though, isn't it? Because, you know, take away the, the clay court season from, from Medvedev, which, OK, you know, none of us would have been picking him to win titles. But there was an opportunity to maybe build on the progress that he made last year, pick up a few extra ranking points. Um, I know he's not got much pedigree on grass, but he says he enjoys it. He he likes playing on grass. I think he backs himself to to figure it out and improve his his results. But, you know, who knows what's going to happen this year on the grass. So he's going to be going into the, the latter portion of the season with a lot of pressure on him on the hard courts, recovering from surgery with a lot of points to defend and suddenly you know that feeling of inevitability about him getting back to world number one you know when somebody's a match away I always sort of think you know you build up the tension and jeopardy but I always think okay but if it's not this match it'll probably be the next one you know it if you get to a match of the away it's probably going to happen and I, I 
certainly felt a feeling of, well, of course he'll get back to number one, but it suddenly feels that bit less inevitable. And I really feel like he does not want to be that two weeks at number one guy, especially given the circumstances of him getting to number one. He has been, he's been muted um, since his country declared war on Ukraine. Um, And that's very understandable. It would almost be sort of inhuman if he, if he weren't a little muted, but it is, I think it's a factor um, in him as a, a tennis player at the moment. So I think, you know, his comeback from that surgery is going to be an interesting one to watch. Um, Mimi Ketsmanovic. What's his potential? Who Who is he now as a tennis player and where has this come from? Last year, he won 17 matches on tour, including qualifying matches. And this year, he's already won 18 main draw matches. He is a completely transformed player. Am I going to take the Ketsmanovic question again this mm-hmm. week? Um, yes. I was looking back on the notes I made, and, and I've mentioned this match before. I watched him in the Davis Cup at the very end of last season against Mikhail Kukushkin. It was a three-and-a-half-hour match, and the notes I made were just Ketsmanovic so many missed opportunities and when when it mattered in the big moments he was really passive like so passive he he had the match ripped from him by Mikhail Kukushkin that is what happened in pretty much the final match he played last year and the Ketsmanovic I watched this year seems to have corrected that mindset you know the way he went after the ball against Alcaraz throughout the whole two and a half hour match couldn't have been more different to the guy I watched at the end of last season. He came up with so many incredible shots under under pressure. You know, there were there were there were a lot of key moments in that match with Alcaraz, and both of them kind of produced their best tennis at the biggest moments, and that that's kind of a mark of a great match. And the angles Ketsmanovic creates on his ground strokes, the way he's able to pull players off the court, makes me think that. He could he could certainly have a game that suits Clay as well. So I'm excited to watch him over the next couple of months on that surface. And yeah, I think you said it at the, at the top of the show, Catherine, reframing how we see Mirmir Ketsmanovic. Because I, I thought of him as someone who was going to hover around 50 in the world and have a have a good career, maybe the odd run to, you know, a third fourth maybe quarter final of a major something like that but yeah he's he's already doing way better than i thought he would with this with this little patch of form he's had he's had now and it feels pretty pretty sustainable it doesn't feel like he's absolutely peaking necessarily it just feels like he's raised his raised his level and i'm i'm so impressed with him i spoke to um a friend of mine that works for the AT, atp and and does um it uh, films a lot of their their content um or produces a lot of their content because i feel like i don't know Mirmir Ketsmanovic like who is he i feel like i haven't seen many interviews with him uh, and she actually went and filmed a feature on him for the atp um in serbia at the end of last year she met his grandparents she met his parents his grandparents you know went to his local club where he started playing tennis and she said he's you know he's he's got a bit of swagger about him um you know, she said the right amount of cockiness, um, but she said he's basically a lovely guy, and she said he's super popular 
behind the scenes. Everybody likes him. All the other players on tour like him. And yeah, she, you know, proud, proud grandparents, which, you know, don't know what's wrong with me today, but that's going to make me tear up as well. <laughs> I don't know whether what he was like before his association with David Nalbandian, but there's another coach who was playing alongside Juan Carlos Ferreira back in the day. And they've been together for quite a while, Nalbandian and Ketsmanovic. Not not the most likely of combinations, really. A, a, an Argentine former top 10 player alongside a, you know, a 50s in the world player from Serbia. It's not something that I would necessarily have expected, albeit um, Ketsmanovic is now much higher. But when you actually... Just watch the, watch him play. There are a lot of similarities. They, he moves in a similar way. His stroke production reminds me of now Bandy, and there's a real smoothness to it all. And yet there's a pop off the strings. He he was going properly toe-to-toe with Alcaraz and holding his own. It was quite something to witness that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I like these bonds that last for a while and you don't immediately kick a coach to touch just because it doesn't go that well or the coach doesn't just dump a player because they're not breaking through immediately. Proper work in progress and they're showing results. Good for them. Mm, absolutely. Um, what else happened in Miami, uh, the latter stages of Miami? Cameron Norrie had a had a, another good run, didn't he? Another creditable week. God, that's such a Cam Norrie adjective I've just used there isn't it sort of damning by faint praise now he's had another great week Cameron Norrie and in particular um, because he has reached the top 10 fourth British man to do so since rankings began in 1973 he follows Greg Rosetsky Tim Hemman and Andy Murray which are pretty great shoes to be walking in Um, so well done Cameron Norrie that is an extraordinary feat actually um, and, you know, repeat repeat all the things I've said about him in the past few weeks. Wasn't expecting him, quite honestly, to back up last season in the way that he has, and I'm just full of admiration for him. Uh, Jack Draper is continuing his sort of quiet consolidation and rise up the rankings, his fourth challenger title of the year in Brittany, France, 6-4 in the third, uh, in the final for him over Zizou Bergs, who I know nothing about, but hope succeeds in life because it's a great name. Um, he's big on TikTok, I believe. Oh, OK. Well, you'd have to be with a name like and that. And he's Belgian. Mm, great. Um, he's up to number 124 in the world, which means he overtakes Liam Brody as the British number four. Uh, I've got some dispatches here from you, David. You would like to say a thank you to a listener. Yes, I would. To Martin Workman, who let me know that there is a way to watch tennis TV matches without spoiling the result for myself, um, because they actually offer a spoiler-free option so that you don't have this match duration at the bottom of the screen. Um, So... Yeah, I just wanted to let other people know that that's available as well because I often hear from people saying how frustrating they find that element. Um, but but it's sorted, thanks to Martin. Big help with the uh, with catching up on the Ketsmanovic Alcaraz match that because um, that happened in the middle of the night, didn't it? Um, yeah, so that's Miami done and dusted. This week we have events in Charleston, which I always say is one of the events I'm I'm most desperate to go to. Uh, Iga Swiatek is very understandably pulled out, but they've got Sabalenka, 
Badosa, Bencic, Pliskova, Jabur, Sloane Stevens, uh, Petra Kvitova, Leila Fernandez, Pagula, Rabakina. They've got a great field uh, in Charleston. And I think of Charleston last year as the place that I uh, first sat up and took notice of Paola Badosa. Um, she beat Barty, didn't she, in, in Charleston last year. So interested to see see her. She's had a few sort of niggles, hasn't she, recently? Sort of illness, fatigue, I don't know. Eyes eyes on Badossa this, this clay court season for me. Uh, there's also a WTA event in uh, Bogota where Camilla Sorio is the defending champion. That was, again, sort of where I first took sat up and took notice of her this time last year. And this... This time around, she's the top seed. Uh, ATP has events in Houston, where you've got Nick Kyrgios playing, Riley Apelka, Taylor Fritz, John Isner, Casper Ruud, understandably, uh, withdrew from that one. And the ATP are also in Marrakesh, uh, where Felix auger and Dan Evans are the top two seeds. So we'll be covering all of those events next week, offer sort of glimpse of what the clay court season might look at before the big dogs enter the fray. Uh, we'll also be recording a Friends Q&A show on Thursday for Friends of the Tennis podcast. Uh, your excellent questions have flooded in in their droves uh, and we'll be doing our very best to answer all of those on Thursday. So that'll be up then. Look out for that if you are a friend of the Tennis podcast. And if you're not but would like to be, um, then details are in our show notes and we strongly recommend and encourage uh, becoming a friend of the show. Uh, so we'll be back on Monday. David won't be there because he's bobbing off on holiday. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yes. So yes, so yes, becoming a friend of the Tennis Podcast is your is your way to get a David fix over yes. the next couple of weeks. There's Don't a selling off, point. Man. Yes, now we can we can track the trajectory of the numbers and see <laughs> in data form how much of a, a human incentive David Law is. Suddenly all the people that have been <laughs> not listening return. Uh, yeah, David uh, is going on holiday just as my Indian Wells tan fades, so that's a shame. Uh, but Matt and I will be back and we may even produce special guests. Don't want to overpromise, but Matt and I will be back. Uh, and as a minimum, we'll have Billie Jean on the show because uh, Matt and I are going to record in person next Monday. I'm very excited about that. Matt, I put some I put some orange squash in my Ocado order today uh, because because you're coming. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Dates? Oh no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're taking a version to the dates. I can I can pop to the shop and get you some dates. Um, right, we. I've come across as horribly ungrateful. Thank you for the own <laughs> yeah. squash. That was a lovely moment of silence. <laughs> it's like dates are your rider, Matt. Um, right there, we have two mascots this week. Um, oh, I'm looking at pictures of them. We've got Alf. And Piper, they're owned by a uh, friend of the tennis podcast, Lauren Boy- Boyle. Uh, Alf is a Sharpay. Um, and Sharpay, if you don't know Sharpays, they've got those beautiful, they've got such great faces. They've got those rolls of skin and they're, they've got funny little ears and they're just, they're just gorgeous. Um, so Alf is uh, at least seven years old. 
um, which is a great way of expressing one's age. I feel like I'm saying I'm at least 25 years old. No <laughs> need no need for any further details. Um, Piper is a four-year-old Sharpe cross, uh, crossed with something unknown. Um, I'm just looking at Piper and trying to, I think, I think possibly a Labrador. Um, that's my diagnosis. Sharpe Labrador cross. Um, they live in Newcastle, Australia, and it's a lovely picture of Alf and Piper. We'll pop it on our Instagram. Uh, so thank you, Lauren, for bringing Alf and Piper into our lives and for being a friend of the podcast. We have our mascots, Carter, Darwin and Gerald. Uh, Billy Jean, who's asleep on my knee right now, has Billy Jean King and Alana Kloss. We have our two executive producers, Chris Albert Lee and Kyle Weingartner. And Matt, we have shout outs. We do. We have Sepa Momarts, who is Belgian but living in Vancouver. Belgian like Zizou. Yes. Zizou do they only Bergs. have good names in Belgium? Yeah. Brilliant. And actually, Seppa has has picked out a couple of Belgian favourites from from the nineties. David, oh, uh, Dominique Monami. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've, I've worked with her. Wasn't mm. she formerly Van Roost? Yes. Oh, I see. And Philip de Wolf. Oh, brilliant! He's now a journalist. He's a. Yes. a I think. A, yeah, he's, he's quite he's quite a big journalist uh, in Belgium. A nice bloke too. And uh, I think he got to. French Open quarters or semis once. Um, that is great niche Belgian 90s tennis player knowledge. I what hope about Zepa Dick Norman? Is... When's Dick well, Norman he hasn't been out? named. Well, disappointed. But the since you're a friend. Brothers, you know, what about Kleisters and Enan? There are others, David. Yeah, there's a Zepa no, didn't explain that that, was, claim that that was an exclusive list. Anyway, thank you, Seppa, very much for your support. It is one of my favourite things that you can just name a random tennis player from the 90s and David will have <laughs> a fact or an anecdote or something. I love it. Uh, we also have Leslie Gianelli from Wallingford, Connecticut. Oh, Leslie. I thought Leslie Gianelli was going to be from Sicily or something. That's a great name. That's a brilliant name. There's a Wallingford near um, near where my parents live in Berkshire. It, well, maybe it's Oxfordshire, actually, Wallingford. I've jumped off the bridge at Wallingford into the river. Oh, my goodness. How did that turn out? Great. It was a thrill. <laughs> it's good to any... know there's one in Connecticut as have well. Have you ever any Leslie tennis players? <laughs> Leslie Bowery. Leslie, Leslie Bowery. Oh, Leslie Allen. Allen. Yes. Yeah, of yes. course we have. Two, two friends of the show. And, and this Leslie, Catherine, is a figure skating judge. Oh, crikey. Oh, and, and I've used a figure skating analogy on this episode. Hmm. Oh, it's all working out perfectly. Hello, Leslie. Thank you for support. And finally today we have Lisa Wiersma from Chicago. Hello, Lisa. And Lisa, oh, Lisa. has two tennis-loving pups, and you're going to love this. One of them is named Cliffy, and the reason... Oh. They're named Cliffy is because Lisa watched so much tennis over the years and loved hearing the name when Pam Shriver would talk to Cliff Drysdale on oh, ESPN. Oh, that's lovely. That's a great story. <laughs> oh, are there any tennis playing Lisas? Lisa Raymond. Lisa Raymond. Yeah, that's it. I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> well, Lisa, you share a name with Lisa Raymond. Congratulations. 
Um, thank you very much for your support. Thank you to all friends of the Tennis Podcast. You'll be getting a show on Thursday. We'll be back with our regular weekly show on Monday when David will be getting sort of a tan. Uh, he'll be back in a couple of weeks, though. Don't you worry. We will speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. 